And uh, there's a theme running through these texts. See if you can detect this theme as we read the inspired word of God. Look at the word as I read it. Don't read it aloud. Read it silently and listen to the inspired word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That was from Romans 8. And now from Psalm 103, get the theme here, 103 verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And finally from Matthew 7, 7 through 11, notice the theme again. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm fully aware that this isn't Father's Day. Father's Day is next Sunday. To all of you children, remember, Father's Day is next Sunday. Be getting gifts and cards and other things this week. Uh, I do plan to preach two fathers next Sunday. But as I thought about the, uh, the Folkerts and their move, and as I talked to some of you this week, I was led to these particular passages about our precious Heavenly Father. I guess if I had an alternate title today, it would be God is not an absentee father. God is not an absentee father. Uh, <clears throat> have you ever heard people say about a a church or a ministry, it's Christ-centered. I love that expression, but I'm actually in two minds when I hear that. It's great. I mean, it's understandable why we'd use it. Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he's the exact imprint of God to man. You don't want to know what God's like? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. Revelation tells us he's king of kings and lord of lords. 1 Timothy 2 tells us he's our only mediator. There's no salvation. That's how we get to God. And we, the disciples, God's disciples, have a name in the Bible. What are the disciples called in the New Testament? What's their name? We have a name. What is it? Christians. Christ ones. Christians. Followers of Christ. So I understand Why people would say, we want a church, or we want a life, or we want a ministry that's Christ-centered. But I would say, we always need to remember, there are two other members of the Trinity. Right? Right? 
And they're just as important as Jesus Christ. There's no hierarchy in the Trinity. Our expressions sort of betray us. We will always use the expression Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible uses it that way sometimes, but not all the time. Sometimes it reverses those. And we think God the Father is the really great God, and God the Son is sort of, well, he's the, the, the God too, but not quite like the God, not quite the God of the Father. And then the Spirit, he's kind of low man on the totem pole. But that's false. That's a heresy. That's called, starts with an S. Have you ever heard of subordinationism? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God, and please understand, they, were, they are equally important. They each have separate tasks to do in redemption, but they're equally important. So we have to be very careful, lest we de-emphasize the Father and the Spirit. I want to preach about the Father today, and it won't be long. I want plenty of time to fellowship everybody to get around to the folkers and, folkers and give them some love. Um, I've quoted three important teachings in the Bible regarding the fatherhood of God, but I want to do more than just talk today. I'm praying right now, and I have prayed, that the Holy Spirit will change our thinking about God today. I guess of all of the mental errors that we can make, there is none more dangerous than a false view of God. Could you think of a worse, could you think of a more dangerous mental mistake to make? than that. I guess the biggest reason that we have mistaken views about God is that we project uh, human relationships onto our relationship to God. You know what I mean? Um, Most obvious example is, is our own fathers. There aren't any sinless fathers on earth. I hate to break the news to you. Even those of us like me who have had and do have faithful, godly, Christian fathers don't have sinless fathers. So it's easy to project back onto God's fatherhood the relationship that we've had with our own fathers. We kind of project that on God. That God is sort of like our own fathers. But I want to tell you, that has things just backwards. Our human fathers don't show us what God is like as a father. Do you understand that? They don't show us what God is like. God as the Father shows us what human fathers should be like. Everybody got that? So I'd like to consider this morning whether some of our ideas about God have been mistaken. And if they have been mistaken, if we can change them. There's one more point of introduction before I get to these three things. This is very important. J.I. Packer once wrote, some of you here have read his writings. I'd recommend to you about everything this man has written. Now in his 80s, fine, reformational man faithful to the gospel. I love his expression. Father is the Christian name for God. Man, isn't that beautiful? And it's true. Now, there are all sorts of names for God in the Bible, for sure. Uh, I mean, I could list them today and don't have time. Let me give you some examples. Yahweh, sort of transliteration from the Hebrew, means Lord or Jehovah. Yahweh's one. Another Hebrew name for God, Jehovah Jireh. Does anybody know what that means? God will provide. Isn't that beautiful? God will provide. Then there's beautiful El Shaddai. You know what that means? Lord God Almighty. He's a mighty God. That's just three. But I must say the predominant Christian name for God is simply Father. And that's why Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, and we do every Sunday. Our Father, 
who art in heaven. And by the way, Jesus constantly refers to God as who? His Father. That's why the Apostles' Creed starts, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now that's not how unbelievers should mainly see God, but that is how we Christians should see God. The first and main thing, not the only thing, but the first and main thing we need to know about God is that he's our Father. I guess God couldn't have chosen a a tenderer way to describe himself to his people. Let me prove that to you from the Bible today. Did you see those verses? If you will, take your bulletin, have them out. I'm going to explain something important about each one of those verses. First, God adopted us into his family. Uh, Paul writes there, do you see the verse? You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now that word, Abba, is not a 70s Swedish rock band. That word, Abba, is a Hebrew word, though of course it's kind of transliterated, we would say, here in the New Testament. It's a term of tender endearment. In English, it's sort of like we would say, Papa, or Daddy. That's how we, that's how we refer to God. He's like Papa, our Daddy. God has adopted us into his family. But please hear this. This was a momentous thought that came to me this week. God already had a family. We don't think about this. God had an eternal son. Now that son came into the world 2,000 years ago. And as a man and we Christians know him, the God man, as Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. So God wasn't lonely. God has always been a father. Think about that. God has always known what it was like to be a father. He's always known. He's never not had a child. But here's the key, and this is what's so wonderful. He wanted more children. He wanted more children. If I may say so reverently, he wanted more kids. He didn't want more because the son was insufficient. He wanted more because he wanted to share the great love and the great communion that they already had. And John 17 makes that clear. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, let them know everything that we've had from eternity past. That's his great high priestly prayer. This is so blessed. It's so fulfilling. It's so glorious, the Father says. We need to share this with others. I need some more kids. And that's why God created man and woman. Of course, we're not God's children in the precise way Jesus is. I'm not saying that. He's fully God, and we're not. But we are no less children than Jesus is. Did you notice that in the text? Do you see the text there in Romans 7? It says we share. We are joint heirs. We are heirs together with Jesus Christ. We're entitled to what he is. Because we too are children of God. We're here today. We're worshiping in the Lord's church because God wanted more than one son. He wanted more than one child. He wanted many sons and daughters. Now one more point before I go on. You know adoption is not biological. It's contrary to nature. We adopt children that we can't or or don't birth 
biologically. Now, this is a fascinating point. We can't choose our biological children. You figured that out, right? You, you, you have a child, and that child is given to you. But we can choose. And some of us know folks that have had adopted children. They choose. They choose their adopted children. Let's say, and it happens a lot, a childless couple travels to Africa or maybe China, and they inspect, they inspect little girls and little boys, and they choose one. And if everything goes well, and if they pay a hefty fee, and if they fill out all sorts of innumerable forms, after a long time, they might, they might be able to bring that child home. Understand that God the Father chose us as his children. He adopted us. You don't believe that? Listen to Ephesians 1.5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It was the Father's will to gather more children into his family. So he chose each one of us as his child. He's already determined our destiny. He chose each one of us. Now I want you to think about the implications of that fact before we move on. God didn't just choose children in mass. It isn't like God went over to the orphanage, said, oh, uh, how many children do you have here? Oh, sir, we've got about 125. Oh, I'll just take the lot of them. What's your price for the lot of them? That's not what the scripture teaches. He inspected us and chose us when we were unlovely, when we were sinful. He chose each one of us individually to be in his family with his son and with the Holy Spirit with all of our sins with all of our failures and all of our unbelief the father still chose us he didn't choose us because we were already good he chose us to make us good this is the father of adoption he chose us each of us individually second our Father is compassionate to us. The psalmist, did you see the psalm? Notice the second verse there. Notice that psalm. I'm going to read it to you again. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, interestingly, do you see that expression, he knows our frame in English? That literally means... In Hebrew, he knows how we are formed. Well, of course he does, because who formed us? He did. Now, I want us to think about that creative act for a minute. This is very important to understand this, because a lot of us, a lot of the church has been infected with false ideas of the composition of man. In Genesis, we learn that God formed man. He reached down, as it were, formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into man's nostrils his spirit, his breath, and that made man a living, what does the Bible say? A living soul, a living being. That's man's composition. Now, being is correct. Some translations say soul. The word soul in the Bible doesn't have the meaning that the ancient Greeks gave to it. This is very important to understand. For the ancient Greeks, the soul is the real you inside your body. Okay? 
your body is sort of a prison or a cage. They would say, when we're looking at one another right now, I'm, looking at, I'm not looking at the real you. I'm looking at your prison. I'm looking at your cage. And the soul is, the philosophers call it, the ghost in the machine. There's something in there running this. Inside here, there's something in there running this. And when you die, the real you escapes. The real you escapes the prison and is gone forever. You saw that? How many of you saw the movie Noah? Good. Um, There are these weird creatures that God apparently made. And inside them, there's the light. And when they're crushed, the light just sort of escapes and goes back to the heavenlies, you know. And he says, we were just imprisoned, imprisoned in these terrestrial bodies. That's just a bunch of Greek hogwash. It's pagan. In Genesis, we learn that man became a living soul. That is, a living being after God breathed into the dirt that he had fashioned as a human body. It's God's breath in the dirt that makes man a living being. Do you understand that? It's God's breath in the dirt that he created. That's what makes man a living being. And the Bible says that. It says also of the animals, not made in God's image, that their breath, when they die, their breath, what? Returns to the Lord who gave it. Now let's think with that in mind about the song that the psalmist wrote. God's our father. He has compassion on us as a human father has compassion on his children. He knows our frame, that we are dust. God knows that we are dirt. Did you know that? He knows that. He knows how weak we are. He knows how anxious we can be. Would you like to know? Though we're beautifully fashioned, beautifully fashioned, we're fashioned by dirt. It's almost, this is not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of like this. You ever go to Santa Cruz Beach? And somebody is out, this person is sort of a, have you ever seen like a beach or a sand sculpture? Somebody that sculpts things? I don't mean little sand castles. I mean somebody really, really good at it. We were down in Mexico and there was a sand sculptor. He made little, little minions from the movie, was it Despicable Me? There were these amazing, in the sand, he had made these, we're just kind of walking by. Those are the minions. Sand sculpture. It just, just was truly, truly remarkable. But understand this, the remarkable thing wasn't that it was sand. Nobody says, wow, that sand is really cool. I'm going to take some of that sand home. Sand, baby, sand. It wasn't the sand. What was remarkable about it was the creative configuration. Now, I want to say, I don't want to degrade anyone here because God doesn't. But understand, this is just dirt. It's just, you don't believe it, it's going to go back to dirt one day. It is. The amazing thing isn't, this composition is such, it's a creative configuration, what God has been able to do with it. That's the amazing thing. That's what's remarkable. That's what's amazing. So God knows what this is. Um, this week I was talking to a dear Christian man I've known for years. He's a local Christian businessman, doesn't go to this church. I've known him for a, a long time. I was at his business and afterwards he pulled me aside and he uh, just... It's just amazing when you know people and talk to them. After a while, they can trust you, you know? And he grabbed me and he says, uh, you know, I, I want to tell you something. It's on the verge of tears. His wife, I already knew, suffered from a difficult cancer and has for years. He says, will you please pray for me? Uh, the company I'm working for, where I was, I was right there. They've been putting pressure on me to move. And if I don't, they're going to demote me. And I just can't move with my wife. 
and he's suffering anxiety and panic attacks, and I told him I knew just what he was going through, and I stopped right there. I stopped right there at his business. We were out in front of his business. Customers going around here and there, and I wouldn't embarrass him, and I said, can I pray right now? He says, yeah. And I stopped right there and prayed that our Heavenly Father would calm his heart and meet the desires of his heart. Because his Father, and my Father, and your Father, he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. He knows that. He's not unaware of our dusty frame. He made the frame. In fact, I told him this. He probably made us from dust so that we could be vulnerable, so we could rely on him. He didn't make us into steel machines. That's man's idea. I'm going to make an invulnerable steel machine, a robot that no one can destroy, which of course is false anyway. But that's man's idea. Man's idea. That's not God's idea. He made us from dirt. Dirt is weak. Dirt's vulnerable. We're made marvelously in God's image. But we're still a composite of dirt and breath. And God is our Father. And He wants us to trust His fatherly goodness. You know, there's something about men you men here, the right kind of man, that just impels us to have children. God places a desire in men, I'm not talking about women today, men, to love and protect the weak and the vulnerable. That's one of the main reasons that a man wants to marry. Not just because there's a cute chick. Well, that goes into it, certainly. It's a main reason he wants to bring children into the world. Me, we men want to we play with children, and we want to care for them, and we want to love them, and we have an innate desire to shower them with goodness, and to protect them, and to just, just protect and love and care for these little helpless lives, these little ones. I think of all Sundays to see little Theo up here. Theo didn't plan it, but God did. Grabbing his daddy's leg and just kind of looking up at his daddy, and that's just a... It's just having to rely on his dad. I've got to hold on to you. I've got to hold on to you. That's the picture of the way that we should be with our God. We're weak and helpless and vulnerable. And he wants to shower us with love and power and tenderness and mercy by caring for us. Now, to those of you going through difficulties today, remember this. God the Father loves to show compassion. God's not greedy. Do you understand? He's saying God's not greedy with his compassion. Well, if you're good enough, if you really get a bad enough fix, maybe, maybe then I'll have a little compassion that I can eke out of my cold heart. That's not the God of the Bible. When our little ones come to us and say, Dad, I've got a problem. Can you fix this? Doesn't our heart go out to them? Our heart goes out to them. And, and we know our obligation, and we would go to any legitimate length necessary to come to their aid, wouldn't we? We would do anything necessary to come to their aid. Know this, our Father will go to any length necessary to come to our aid. Because he's a compassionate Father. And then finally, notice that third verse, set of verses. Our Father wants to give us good things. He wants to. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, did you notice the last part? Please look at that last part of those verses. You know, we often read the word of God, but we don't think hard about what we read. But you see, you actually have to think hard about what's being said. Jesus there in the bottom, did you see those last verses? He's contrasting human fathers negatively 
with our Heavenly Father. He's saying if your heavenly father, your earthly father is sinful, and if your earthly father still cares for you, imagine how much our Heavenly Father, who's not sinful, cares for us. Imagine. Now, I'm afraid that many Christians, perhaps some of us, have developed very mistaken ideas about God on this. Now, I want you to hear me out, and I'm almost done. We sometimes think the important thing isn't what I want, but the important thing is God's sovereign will. That statement, it's ultimately true. But in another sense, if that's the only thing we think, that's a slap in the face to God. So, Andrew, shouldn't we want God's sovereign will? Absolutely. But hear me out on this. Would you think of your own father that way? What if you heard your children say this? The important thing, Dad, this morning, is not what I want, but the important thing is what you want. I'm not going to tell you anything I want because I want what you want. I dare say, if your children got up every day and either said that or implied that, I dare say you dads would get a little disturbed after a while. There's a simple reason for that. You want your children to know that one main thing that you long for is to give them things they want. You want them to know that you want to do good things for them. You want them to know, you want them to know that you want to do good things for them. You don't want them to think you don't care about them. That all you care about is getting your own way all the time. Now listen carefully. God does get his way. But please understand that one big way God gets his way is to please his people. Did you understand that point? Think hard about that. Now, God is more loving, he's more caring, he's more interested, he's more compassionate, he's more selfless than any human father could be. And therefore that text says he wants to give good things to those who ask him. Now, think about how twisted our thinking is. If we as a dad say... We want to give good things to our children, legitimate things. When they ask for good things that would be helpful to them, and we we want to give good things to our children. But then when we turn around and pray and say, God, I don't really want to ask you to do any good thing for me because I just want your sovereign will. What you're really saying is that you are a better father than God is. And guess what? That's wrong. God's a better father than you and I are. He's much better. He's more compassionate. He's more thoughtful. He's more desirous of doing kind things for his children than you and I are. Think hard with me on this and I'll be done. If God wants to do good things for us at our request, if God wants to do good things for us, we are depriving him of what he wants by refusing to ask him for good things. Now, did everybody get that? I want you to think about that. If God wants to do good things for us at our request, we are depriving him of what he wants by refusing to ask him for good things. Now, if your children never asked you for any good things, Dad, would that silence please you? Would you say, I'm so happy. I am so happy my children never asked me to do anything. I am just so happy they never asked for Christmas presents. They never asked for birthday presents. They never asked for any food. They never asked for anything. Man, am I a lucky dad. 
what dad would ever say that? Annoy you if anybody thought you were that kind of dad. Now question, are you a better father than God is? If not, we need to get busy asking God the Father for good things. Because as a loving father, he delights to do good things for his people. Do not rob God of his delight. Do not deprive God of his fatherly delights. Let's review. God our Father has adopted us into his family. He chose us to be Jesus' brothers and sisters. God our Father is compassionate to us as his children. He knows that our frame is just dusty. And finally, God our Father wants to do good things for us. Let's not deprive him of what delights him as a father. Let us bow our heads. Let us close our eyes. I'd like for my fellow elder Don to pray that God gives us an inspired understanding of his fatherhood today.